Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. You know, as we begin the program, I have a few introductory remarks. And uh, I I was delighted when the Consul General uh, asked me to give some thought to the subject today, because usually my remarks are limited to just introducing a, a, a speaker, and it gave me a chance to think about this. And, you know, one of the things that I really love about the World Affairs Council, and I hope you share this, is that it gives us an opportunity sometimes to dive deeper into subjects and to uh, and, and to also uh, speak with um, uh, panelists and, and distinguished leaders and, and also share thoughts with an audience that is well-informed, as many of you are, of course, in this room. Um, over the course of the next several weeks and months, as we pay tribute and celebrate and commemorate the 20th anniversary of NAFTA, it gives us a chance to really think about what free trade agreements mean. Um, Each one is different, but they share many of the same characteristics. Um, A deeper study of of NAFTA's hits and misses is also, I think, very timely uh, because there are other important trade agreements that are being negotiated as we speak today, and they're being hotly debated. Uh, Obviously, we have the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, the TTIP, which is between the United States and the European Union, and then we have the Trans-Pacific Partnership that would bring together 12 countries creating what would be the largest free trade zone in the world. Now, we had a a program a few weeks ago about this, and uh, the representative of the USTR, the United States Trade Representative, said that the administration was firmly behind both of these agreements and that they expected to see action and votes taking place. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, Harry Reid, you may remember this quote when he asked about the prospect of TIPP being passed and voted on this year. He said, quote, everyone would be well advised just to not push this right now. Uh, In everything that I've seen, I can't imagine any action on any of these agreements, certainly before the midterms, and I would be really quite surprised if we saw it any time in the next uh, two, two, two years. However, uh, I saw another interesting uh, article where they said that this is a key time for us to be really looking at the TIPP because of the actions that are taking place right now in Crimea um, because it, it's so important for these countries and in, in, in especially the United States and European Union to, to build solidarity. Um, the Congress is also hesitated and there's been no action on giving the administration fast track authority. And so that is something that is also making it even more difficult for the administration to pursue any of these actions. You know, I've also been struck, and this is one of the reasons I was eager to have the chance to do some reading over the course of the last few weeks about this, about the very strong and differing viewpoints in the media. Mayor, you know, if you're looking at the Arab-Israeli conflict, Everybody has an opinion on it. 
everybody has an opinion on a number of critical foreign policy issues. But I think when you're talking about free trade and globalization, the book is still to be written. And yet several very key and wise people come at it from very different positions. And so I think it is incumbent upon all of us not to suddenly form an opinion, but to continue to be, have an open mind. Somebody that we had speak at the World Affairs Council a number of years ago was a Nobel laureate in economics, Joseph Stiglitz, and I followed him closely for a, a number of years. And he wrote recently in the New York Times, trade agreements are a subject that can cause the eyes to glaze over. That won't happen today with the speakers that we have. However, he stresses that this is a critical time for us to be thinking about this. And he argues that trade agreements should not be viewed today as they were in the past. Trade agreements are not just about an issue of tariffs, but now they're also concerning regulations. And so that's probably a critical difference in how trade agreements are being, the free trade agreements are being negotiated uh, in the 21st century than they were in the last 20 years. Uh, today it is our intent to provide perspectives from two leading experts, but it really is just the beginning of our examination and I hope yours. A presentation that I often give to civic groups, and some of you have heard it, is DFW is a global city, a global region. We know that the airports all over, the airport in Addison, Dallas, Fort Worth, Alliance, all of these are major drivers to our economy. But so too are our networks of, of roads and railways. Trade among our countries has truly been growing at an exponential rate. Uh, that has allowed companies like Bombardier, who has major operations here, and Volkswagen and many other firms to establish important operations in Dallas-Fort Worth, efficient operations and cheaper operations. The Economist editorialized just a few weeks ago that NAFTA has created, quote, factory North America. And to be specific, and this is really a very interesting st uh, statistic, U.S. trade with Mexico has increased over 500 percent from 1993 to 2012, compared to 279 percent with non-NAFTA countries. And while there is, continues to be much debate on jobs, there is certainly no job loss in, in, in most areas uh, that, that concern uh, our, our region. Robert Pastor, who is the director of the Center for North American Studies at American University, says that job losses and gains in the last 20 years have been largely generated by the global economy and competition. He also says the period of greatest growth in trade among the NAFTA countries coincided with the period of the largest growth in employment of jobs in the United States, up to about 24 million jobs. And we had Fareed Zakaria a few weeks ago. And you remember how he has always said it's not necessarily that the U.S. is falling behind, but that other countries are catching up. North America's share of world exports has fallen, in fact, from 19% to 13% since 1994. Now today, and over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be, months, we're going to be really looking at how to maximize NAFTA's potential. And so some of the questions I have are, what, how would the ratification, if it happened, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership impact NAFTA? Regional and bilateral trade deals can serve to divert trade from within our house to outside. For instance, Mexico now has 14 FTAs with other nations. The United States now has 20. 
and I have read some people feel that these trade agreements have been detrimental to NAFTA. Perhaps it would be better if the three countries that take part of NAFTA work together more closely to form a bilateral relationship so that you'd have Canada, Mexico, and the United States signing free trade agreements bilaterally. The issue of uh, uh, cross-border security has also been a major stumbling block as we look at how NAFTA has performed. And while border crossings between the United States and Mexico are a greater issue for a number of reasons than those between Canada and the United States, there have also been obstacles that have been cited between uh, the United States and Canada. In researching this subject, I also realized that there are some issues that might surprise you such as the pre-clearance of goods coming out of Mexico. Well, one of the issues is U.S. Customs agents are required to carry firearms. That's not permitted on the Mexico side of the border. So I suggest today again that we look at today's program as a starting point and really begin a discussion on the future of NAFTA, but that it also serve as a platform for us to be more ambitious and to think about the pros and cons of our overall trade policy and don't forget how important trade is to Dallas-Fort Worth. It was just uh, a few weeks ago that I happened to be at a dinner, and I was seated next to a major uh, congressperson on the Democratic side of the aisle, and at the table next door was a major Congress representative, representative of Congress from the Republican Party. So I took the opportunity to ask them what they thought about the prospect of the ratification of these trade agreements. And both of them said, it would be very good for Dallas-Fort Worth, but it certainly won't pass, and both of them are not supporting it. So I think you who, as you look into the subject more deeply, if you are one that thinks that these trade agreements are good for our region, good for your business, and good for our country, then don't hesitate to contact your Congress representatives and, and let them know your views. Um, <clears throat> let me now go and introduce our, our panelists, and I'm going to start with the man who came the farthest, Antonio Ortiz Mena. Why don't you both come up, if you would, Pia and Ortiz. Thank you, Antonio. <clears throat> Dr. Antonio Ortiz Mena is head of economic affairs at the Mexican Embassy in Washington, so he is glad to be outside of the Beltway, I know. He has served as the advisor to the Deputy Minister for Social and Regional Development and uh, has had a, a, a number of wide uh, responsibilities, including working at the Mexican Fisheries Ministry and has been involved um, in, earlier in his career as Director of Relations with Congress and State Governments for the Mexican Ministry of Trade and Industrial Development. So he's been very closely affiliated with issues of uh, uh, cross-border commerce and particularly the free trade agreements. Uh, Dr. Pia Ornias, she's Vice President and Senior Economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, served in the White House um, in the uh, Bush administration, focusing on um, Im immigration. She manages the Texas Business Outlook Surveys and Executive Editor of the quarterly publication Southwest Economy. Uh, she's a research fellow as well at SMU at the Tower Center for Political Studies. Um, and um, has also done quite a bit of work on, uh, on our main interests are labor, health, and immigration. Let me just make a, another plug for the Fed, if I may, Pia. If you've not taken a, a time to look at their website and get on their mailing list for free publications, you're missing a great opportunity. 
thank you so much for both of you. And I think since you've come all the way from the Beltway, within the Beltway, why don't you start? Thank you. Thank you for the decision. Can you hear me okay? Well, you know, it, it really is great to be uh, out in the Beltway. Uh, even for a few days to be here in Addison, I want to thank the Military uh, Council of Dallas, Fort Worth, and my dear friend, the Council General of Dallas Trip for to share some uh, ideas about uh, Mexico-U.S. trade and investment uh, relations. So if it's okay with you, I'll just address you briefly with uh, some remarks, but I would very much like to engage in Q&A. I think that's what would be most interesting for me, and I hope that that would also be uh, the case for you. Um, a couple of ideas I want to share uh, with you now. Uh, as you all know we are uh, commemorating the 20th anniversary of the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, NAFTA. And I would say it's been somewhat of a cottage uh, industry to assess NAFTA. Is it good or bad? Did it create jobs or was it, was it uh, trade creation, etc.? And I think it's important to keep in mind what NAFTA was uh, all about. From my perspective, it had to do with the establishment of clear and stable and transparent rules to govern trade and investment in North America. That is to say, we want to, to uh, establish a framework that avoided surprises. You know, business persons do not like surprises. I understand that very clearly. They want predictability, they want to know what the rules of the game are, and then they decide whether to invest or not, whether to export, whether to import, but they need to know what the rules and that's what NAFTA was all about. It created clear and stable and predictable rules. If you, you know, read the NAFTA preamble and the aims, that's what it was all uh, about. I don't suggest you doing it, you know, except if you want to, you know, have a trouble getting to sleep that you start reading NAFTA. But that, 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 that's what it uh, states. So if you, we assess NAFTA from that perspective, I think it really has been an outstanding success. You know, trade has boomed, investment uh, has boomed, and the rules have uh, remained in place now for uh, over uh, 20 years. That, you know, a large number of statistics, you can slice the pie any way you want, but I like to state that uh, on a bilateral basis, Mexico, U.S., uh, Trade has grown from about 80 billion to about 500 billion dollars annually, which is one million dollars per minute. So if I speak for about uh, 10 minutes, it's 10 million dollars worth of trade. Well, I'm just sitting here. Things are moving uh, a lot. Mexico is the third uh, trade partner of the U.S. and second export uh, destination, way above. Uh, other countries that maybe loom larger in the public imagination and, and in the public discourse. And even though this is evident to me because I have to deal with, with this on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not readily seen by a lot of people here in the U.S. I guess in a way Mexico is taken for granted and you know access to the Mexican market is taken for granted, but a lot of people just don't realize the size of it, the dimension of it. 
and I have to keep reminding people how important it is. Mexicans are keenly aware of how important the U.S. is for Mexico, but I don't think everyone in the U.S. is as aware of how important Mexico is for the day-to-day -day prosperity of Americans. I think you know, that is something I cannot do on my own, and my colleague Octavio and the other colleagues here uh, can do, but I think all of you have to share your views and your experiences about how linking with Mexico benefits Texas, that benefits Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, benefits Edison, of course. Um, a couple of statistics that I think are important to keep in mind. Um, the U.S. exports more to Mexico than to Brazil, Russia, India, and China combined, the so-called BRIC countries. And I'll have to mention an additional fact because I'm a bit big fan of soccer. The World Cup is coming up a few weeks uh, from now in Brazil. And it might be interesting for you to know that the U.S. exports more to Mexico than to the eight uh, countries that have won the World Cup so far. That's not counting, <laughs> that's not counting Mexico this year. So we'll have some problems there when Mexico wins the, the World Cup. And in terms of uh, jobs, the U.S. Chamber has estimated that about 6 million U.S. jobs are linked to trade with Mexico. So this is you know, the first take on what uh, NAFTA means. Given that I'm in Texas, I had to do some research on, on uh, Texas-Mexico trade. I knew it was very, very important. Uh, you know, Texas looms large, as I said, no pun intended, but really does loom large and uh, it turns out that uh, Texas exports to Mexico amount to almost half of US exports to Mexico about 45 uh, percent and if you want to compare this with uh, trade with other uh, countries uh, Texas exports to Mexico ballpark about a hundred billion are larger than total U.S. exports to Japan, and larger than total U.S. exports to Germany and the U.K. combined. Again, I think we need this comparison because sometimes numbers don't really convey uh, the full uh, uh, picture. And I don't think we have reached a limit. That is to say, I don't think that Texas is ahead of the curve and other U.S. states will be where Texas is. I think they're still huge potential uh, for growth. And that is because not only are Mexico and the U.S. and Texas and Mexico trading in, in, intensively, but investment has also increased a lot over these past uh, 20 years. The U.S. is the main investor in Mexico, but Mexican investment has also been increasing by leaps and bounds uh, to the U.S. and specifically uh, to Texas, and these, this investment that flows from uh, north to south and from south to north has meant that we have increasingly integrated production chains between Mexico and the U.S. and across uh, North America. Sometimes I like to give an example about a, a Canadian company, Bombardier, that produces you know, trains and uh, mid-sized uh, aircraft whereby the fuselage is built in Querétaro, 
about two hours north of Mexico City. The turbines are manufactured in Canada and they're uh, usually using turbines uh, with technology from a U.S. company, Pratt & Whitney, and final assembly takes place in uh, Kansas. And this, for me, shows two things, how deeply integrated production chains are, and this is not, again, this is not a soccer game, this is not, I score a goal, that's one goal for Mexico, zero for our opponents. No, this is a positive sum game. I think this is something where everyone does win, and we really have to turn our minds towards that worldview. It's not, you know, trade is not soccer, it's not, you know, zero sum. I think this, again, that might be a, a basic point, but I think we have to understand it, have examples, and really convey this. If we are to engage more constructively between Mexico and uh, and the U.S. Now, the situation right now um, in uh, 2014 is not the same as in the early 90s when we were negotiating NAFTA. I mean, there was hardly any email. I remember that very well. Never mind e-commerce, eBay, Amazon. I mean. But it really was a different, a different universe. And just imagine the, the impact that has on trade and services, the impact of technology and, and the production of goods. So it's a completely different uh, landscape. We have 3D printing. I mean, I, th I think we're just starting to understand these technological changes. And we have to see how we can take full advantage about these, I would say, game-changing technological uh, changes to make North America the most competitive region in the world. I think we can do it, and on top of that, we have energy. That might be of slight interest to uh, Texas. With the energy reform in Mexico, I think there will be huge opportunities for investment. It just makes sense that you know Texas should be at the forefront. They have the uh, expertise in terms of uh, things like shale gas, but also a lot of related services. Uh, I'm sure, like uh, uh, legal services, technical services, not just you know doing uh, the wealth. And I think there are just huge opportunities. And with with the energy reform, the uh, competitiveness of the Mexican economy will be radically increased. And I think that will also benefit the U.S. and uh, and Texas. Uh, two more uh, items. I don't want to uh, take too much time, so I can. Uh, two, two additional items that I think are worth, worth bearing in mind. Last uh, May, President Obama was in uh, Mexico City, and together with President Peña Nieto, they launched what we call the high-level economic dialogue, and that's, as its name would suggest, it's a high-level dialogue between different federal agencies of both governments with uh, very uh, close connections with the private sector that are addressing bottlenecks that still exist and do not allow us to take full advantage of our natural economic complementarity, the fact that we are neighbors, and we are looking at reducing transaction costs in our shared economic space. So even though we advance a lot with NAFTA, there are, you know, for sure still some important transaction costs like, you know, border efficiency issues, logistics issues, you know, infrastructure issues, and I think we need to address those issues. Uh, to really attack the full uh, potential of Mexico-U.S. engagement. And then more recently, last February, President Peña Nieto hosted uh, President uh, Obama and Prime Minister Harper 
in Toluca for the North American Leader Summit. And some of the initiatives that we are taking at the bilateral level to the high-level economic dialogue, we will address at the trilateral level to think in North American terms, as would be logical if we started doing that over 20 years ago with the North American Peace Agreement. And I really do think that North America could be one of the, if not the most, economically dynamic regions in uh, the world. And finally, I would also like to mention uh, Bob Pastor. I, I believe that you mentioned Bob Pastor. I would say he sadly passed away earlier this year. He was a, a dear, dear friend. He headed the Center for North American Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. And I had the privilege of knowing him. And I guess we had an ongoing discussion over the years. And, and uh, he used to propose, you know, very strategic thinking, thinking big, thinking in, in, medium and long, in the medium and long term. And I used to say, uh, Bob, you know, that's, you know, fine, but it's, it's not uh, feasible. And he would say, look, you know, we shouldn't just do what's uh, feasible. We should do what's desirable, even if it's difficult. So I think, you know, I think he's right and wrong. I'm not a bit too conservative. And I do think we need to think big and to think in terms of what is desirable. If it's not feasible, we have to see how we can make it more feasible. And for me, that means really addressing head on the transaction costs that still remain to really tap the full potential that is right here in North America. So with that, I would have these brief remarks. I would love to hear uh, your views on, on these issues and hopefully engage in Q&A. Thank you. Thousand pages. 
you know, Canada and Japan in the different categories. So it's just amazingly successful. They're so successful that the Brazilians, of course, have some domestic auto production, you know, asked Mexicans kindly last year to stop exporting so many cars to Brazil because they simply could not uh, compete. And so they actually put quotas in violation of the trade agreement that you have with Brazil, right? And so that's a kind of a sore point. But I mean, that's how, that's how efficient and productive Mexican manufacturing has become that, you know, they've, uh, the other countries are sort of afraid of them. But, uh, of course, Brazil has protected their manufacturing industry, which is why they can't compete. And so this is, this is, this is very interesting. And the, and the reason that the growth of the manufacturing industry, especially in Mexico, has not been a lose, really, for the U.S. economy is in the sense that so much of this trade is intra-industry trade. And so, actually, a lot of these components are going into Mexico uh, being manipulated or assembled and come back from Mexico. And so the content, the U.S. content in U.S.-Mexico trade is really high. Depending on how you calculate it, it's between a quarter and 40%. I mean, there's different ways of calculating intra-industry trade. But, and you mentioned this as well, um, just how important that is. But if you look at the corresponding share for Chinese imports, for example, the U.S. content is less than 5%. So really, there's huge U.S. content in U.S.-Mexico trade, which also makes it sort of a win-win um, if you look at it uh, from the intra-industry uh, perspective. I talked about some of the costs, and I talked about the case of El Paso, for example, um, so I won't mention that again. Let me just sort of finish by talking about, you know, why then these negative perceptions of NAFTA? I mean, because economists generally, we tend to see um, NAFTA did a lot of good, especially in Mexico, made a huge difference in the Mexican economy. It's been very good for Texas. Uh, and, um, and interestingly enough, if you look at Mexico-Canada growth, that's the trade that grew the fastest. We say, oh, you know, U.S.-Mexico trade grew uh, like 220% in real terms over this post-NAFTA period. But I think your trade with, Mex with Canada grew much faster. Uh, and so interesting, interesting connections grow out of free trade agreements that really nobody, nobody could have predicted. But so what went wrong, or the criticism that we still face in terms of NAFTA, I think is a result of unrealistic expectations. So what people would point out is that NAFTA was supposed to result in the economic development of the Mexican economy. Wages were supposed to converge in Mexico to the U.S. wage level, basically, if you adjust for the purchasing power um, of Mexican wages. And so that hasn't happened. On average, it's true. There hasn't been wage conversion between Mexico and the U.S. And so I think that's sort of the big disappointment. But I would also say that that was an unrealistic expectation. I think that NAFTA is what it is. It's a free trade agreement, and it's really had uh, a limited scope. And where it's had an impact, it's had a positive impact. We've talked about this amazing manufacturing industry in Mexico. We've talked about the foreign direct investment and the growth in trade. But NAFTA sort of, uh, you know, has stopped. After that, there has been no further really development of NAFTA into other areas, um, and it's. Uh, you know, it's really the narrowness of the agreement uh, that's caused it, um, caused its benefits to be uh, to be limited. I would argue, and I think that other experts have, have said the same thing. And in fact, on a recent trip to Mexico City, uh, Richard Fisher, who's the president of Dallas, said, uh, you know, we met together with the Secretary Vidigaraya, the Secretary of Hacienda, and he said, you know, the whole point of the reforms that they're doing now in Mexico is because they realize they have a competitive, tradable sector, largely because of NAFTA and all the other free trade agreements. Because Mexico has something like 45 free trade agreements with you know, all these different countries. It's not just NAFTA. But so they have a very successful, tradable sector, which is mostly manufacturing, right? 
Uh, but they have a very unproductive and uncompetitive non-tradable sector, which is largely the service sector. And so this is the problem. And so he said the point of the reforms that they're doing now, the fiscal reforms, the banking reforms, uh, and hopefully the energy reforms, is to open up the rest of the Mexican economy to the benefits of international competition and the benefits of international investment and allow some of these benefits that are flowed from NAFTA to flow into, into the service sector. So I think, um, I think um, that argument really uh, is very telling in the sense that the benefits of NAFTA have been limited uh, because it's been limited. Uh, and so I can, we can talk more about the other things that have happened in Mexico, all the headwinds that have happened sort of, that have confronted the Mexican economy over the last 20 years that have also made it hard really for, for the Mexican economy to progress. But I, I'm, I think I'll leave that maybe to questions and answers. And I'll just finish by saying, you know, in my opinion, I think there's a lot of successes uh, in NASA, uh, but there's also a lot of unfinished business. Uh, and whether you talk about migration, the management of the border, uh, you know, trucks, for example, that's a big violation uh, of NAFTA on the U.S. part. Um, and, the, and, and, and NAFTA's inability to resolve these disputes. I mean, dispute resolution and resolution of NAFTA has been a failure, I think, largely. And then there are new problems coming on the horizon that I just experienced, if I can relate a personal, you probably get these stories all the time, Octavio, but have, there are, you know, problems arising now as a result of the drug wars and some capital controls. It's getting harder to send money to Mexico. I don't know if you guys are sending remittances or as a part of, you know, companies and so forth, you're sending money back and forth. But just trying to send money to my mother-in-law <laughs> the other day, the Mexican, the, my remittance was frozen. And I had money grant to stay here in Dallas, I found So I called and complained, and they let the money go through. But basically, uh, this is a serious issue because you have a globalization, you have all these, you know, billions of dollars of remittances flowing to Mexico, and of course, lots of money flowing the other way into the U.S. economy. And it's very important that these capital flows move unhindered, unencumbered, uh, and, and they're not, and less and less. And I don't know if any of you know more detail about these issues that are coming up in, uh, in the banking industry and moving money back and forth. But we have to be very careful. We have to be very vigilant because we have maybe taken uh, globalization for granted in terms of trade, free trade agreements, capital flows, this type of thing, but all this has kind of ground to stop. And I think you're seeing deglobalization on some level, uh, and you have to be very wary of that um, as, as, as voters, um, as, as members of the community, look out for that and, and, and be aware. Uh, and remember the benefits of commerce and, and the problems that, uh, that can arise from limiting opportunities. Thank you both, and now it's our opportunity to open it up to the floor for questions and, and comments. Consul General, do you have any comments before we open it up widely? Very good. Where do we have? And we have a mic here. Right over there, please. Um, I have two questions. Um, one is, uh, uh, what is the implication of NAFTA on the development of rule of law in Mexico? And the second question is, uh, uh, recently, um, the uh, migrants from uh, uh, Mexico to the uh, sorry, United States to uh, Mexico is now uh, more than uh, the migrant from the Mexico to the United States. 
So how does the matter, uh, how does the United, uh, does the NAFTA matter for the new uh, trend of the more immigration from U.S. to Mexico than Mexico to the U.S.? Pia, why don't you take that since focusing on immigration first? Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, Jim. Uh, so good question. So I think you're alluding to the fact that we've seen uh, pretty steep declines in in-migration from Mexico. Um, a lot of that has been undocumented in the past, and we're seeing, you know, large declines in undocumented immigration uh, from Mexico. And it, it started, you know, immigration from Mexico peaked, we think, in about 2007. And there have been years shortly after the Great Recession, maybe 2009-2010, where actually net migration was negative from Mexico, and that's according to the Pew Hispanic Center. They did those studies uh, where they're estimating flows, which is not an easy thing. But it sort of came as a shock. I mean, who would have imagined that this day would ever come? I mean, writing my dissertation at UCLA, I remember, you know, oh, you know, if we had a guest worker program, how many would we have to accommodate? 500,000? 600,000? 700,000? To imagine that <laughs> zero? I mean, you know, think of net migration from I never thought the day would come. But you take a bad enough U.S. economy, which I think was the main reason for that, uh, improvements in Mexico, which frankly there have been many improvements that we haven't you know, talked about in detail, uh, but uh, improvements in the Mexican economy uh, and slowing population growth in Mexico and then a terrible U.S. economy and a complete collapse of the construction sector, the housing with the housing bust and so forth, we saw these flows dry up. And then of course we saw, unfortunately also, record deportations, uh, you know, un, uh, unprecedented border enforcement really on the border in terms of things like Operation Streamline where people were actually put in prison or put in jail you know, for crossing the border, which in the past had not been the case. Um, they were criminally prosecuted. And so there are many changes in border enforcement. I think the main driver of this trend has been the poor U.S. economy, in particular the collapse of the construction Other questions? Yes. And as we wait for the mic to go over there, you touched on this, but tell us about the process for dispute resolution. Yes, uh, on dispute resolution, it, it has to get a bit complicated, but let me simplify this. You know, I mentioned at the outset of my remarks that NAFTA had to do with the establishment of clear rules and credibility. So part of NAFTA had to do with the reduction of tariffs and of non-tariff barriers, but also the establishment of dispute settlement mechanisms. So NAFTA has, I guess, three basic sets of these mechanisms. You have a dispute settlement mechanism to deal with unfair trade practices, dumping and subsidies. That's NAFTA chapter 19. Well, so 2,000 pages, a big chunk of that has to do with that. And most NAFTA uh, disputes have, have been related to so-called, you know, ADCBD or anti-dumping countervailing duty. And it's not, I mean, and it goes all ways. It's not only, you know, Mexico is the, the defendant, so it's the U.S., sometimes Canada. So it gets pretty complicated. And I think, by and large, a lot of those disputes have been settled favorably. And just the fact that you have this provision in NAFTAQ makes everyone extra careful to avoid getting into problems in those issues. So I would say that that has been okay. Then you have a different system, which is NAFTA chapter 11, has nothing to do with bankruptcy. That just happens to be chapter number 11 of NAFTA, and that's the investor state dispute settlement uh, mechanism. The idea was that with these provisions, 
NAFTA would create certainty for foreign investors in other countries. Uh, I think some people assume that Mexico would you know, be receiving capital and that U.S. and Canadian investors would need additional security in terms of how their invest investment would be treated. Uh, but there have been uh, some disputes between the U.S. and Canada using uh, Chapter 11, not only Mexico and the U.S. This, uh, this chapter has been somewhat more controversial in terms of how many rights and responsibilities should investors have vis-a-vis -vis governments and the need to regulate certain issues like the environment, health, etc. Some of these issues are taken up in some negotiations that were, that were mentioned, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiation. And then you have a third set of rules, which is NAFTA Chapter 20, which deals with state versus state districts. And that has to do with compliance or non-compliance with NAFTA. And what one issue that has been very uh, difficult to resolve has been cross-border trucking uh, services under NAFTA. The U.S. committed to allowing Mexican trucks to, you know, depart Mexico and deliver cargo uh, in the U.S., but uh, the U.S. did not fully comply with its NAFTA commitment. So after a uh, ruling by a NAFTA a panel, which was unanimously in favor of Mexico, uh, we were able to slowly start towards resolving this issue. Right now, we have a pilot uh, program that is underway, and hopefully. Uh, in the medium term, we will have the original NAFTA rules governing trucking uh, enforced. Uh, I was mentioning to a, a, a colleague at, at the table before I came here that never in my wildest dream did I imagine that you know, after participating in the, uh, in the NAFTA discussions over 20 years ago, I would be talking about trucking in 2014, but you know, here, here I am. Uh, but hopefully that will be resolved in the not too distant future, and it is critically important to do so. As I said, we are just so complementary in terms of, you know, demographic profiles. Maybe you can mention a little bit uh, about that uh, in terms of our energy uh, endowment. That if we have unresolved issues like having it very, be very costly and inefficient to deliver goods by land, by truck, from Mexico to the U.S., then that is a competitive disadvantage. That's shooting ourselves in the foot. I don't think uh, we need to do that. Yes, could you speak on uh, the future productions, uh, production, I guess, of oil and gas producing and drilling maybe in Mexico? Do you see what's happening there? Is there anything? So I can say, all righty, I believe you have the last question. I can just say what well, we can both. Yeah. I can say what I learned when on this trip with Richard Fisher in to Mexico a month ago. Uh, we met actually with the CEO of Chemex, and that was a really interesting meeting, uh, especially coming from the Texas perspective. Uh, we go down there, and we're very excited about the shale boom here in Texas and everything it's done for our economy. And we're thinking now with the energy reforms in Mexico that they can enjoy sort of the similar uh, benefits. Uh, of, of an oil boom and an oil and gas boom in particular, and, uh, and especially since we know that the Eagle Ford shale, which extends, you know, into Mexico, and so they have the same, really the same um, geology, but then, of course, once you look across the border, there's no activity there, and there's crazy activity on this side. So it's really a, stri a striking uh, contrast 
But what was interesting with the PEMEX, uh, we said, well, how are the energy reforms going to affect your company? We said, well, we're going to, they're going to basically concentrate on the low-cost oil, the, you know, the shallow, and shallow water and deep water, the stuff that they expect is going to cost about $20 a barrel to extract. And then he goes, they were not interested in the shale oil, and so they would leave that to with the Texas companies or international companies that want to come down and extract the shale they were welcome to. <laughs> so I thought it was funny, uh, you know, this contrast in their thinking. But he was very excited. Um, and then talking about, uh, talking to the Secretary of Hacienda, he thinks that by the end of the sexennial, because of the energy reform in, um, in particular, they may reach 5% rate. Yes, uh, you know, there will be a huge potential derived from the energy reform in Mexico. Again, like method 20 years ago, we're establishing clear and transparent and predictable rules for private investment participation, both domestic in Mexico and you know, uh, international. And I'm sure that uh, the U.S., but particularly Texas, has a huge comparative advantage. And this will be a good not only for the energy sector, but the whole of the Mexican economy. If we can really tap our resources and have reliable sources of energy at competitive prices, that will increase the productivity of the Mexican economy. And that's good for Mexico, but that is also good for the U.S. You mentioned a series of reforms that were implemented over the past few months. Uh, you know, the Mexican government has implemented reforms on you know, financial services, labor laws, uh, education, telecoms, energy, competition policy. I mean, it's been a flurry of activity. And the common denominator of what these reforms have in common is that they are aimed at unleashing the productivity of the, of the Mexican economy. The finance minister likes to talk about the democratization of productivity, uh, having everyone have a fair chance at, increasing, at, at improving their lot by you know, reducing, again, entry barriers to businesses, and I just think it's just a, a, a game changer. I think it'll be like NAFTA was 20 years ago. I think when we look back, this will be seen as, as the beginning of, the, of a new era of sustained economic growth in Mexico, not a flash in the pan. Uh, so it's been very hard work, but I think it will definitely pay off, and it's good for us, I guess. It's also good for you. And especially good for North Texas. I'm, I'm sure that I speak for all of our audience and thanking our two distinguished experts. Thank you so much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.